Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I hope that you are having a great day. It's now time for episode number 63, and I'm so glad that you're here. Please be sure to like and share every episode with everybody that you care about. So let's get to it. Uh, Short intro, because it's just Ken and I, and we get caught up on a handful of different subjects. One of them, most notably, is last, I guess two weeks ago, Ken and I were in New Orleans, and a great conference, bunch of healthcare and healthcare entrepreneurs brought together to collaborate. We do it a few times a year. But I was asked to give a speech or talk, if you will, about how to best prepare one's health if they happen to know that they are going to engage in psychotropics or psychedelic therapies. This could be MDMA, this could be ketamine, this could be psilocybin, etc. But with the explosion, really, of all of the different therapeutic clinics popping up, offering these modalities and therapies along with counseling, etc., there are really things that people can do, patients can do, to optimize their health, not only to enhance their experience, but also aid in the recovery from that experience so that they don't uh, feel bummed out or they just simply return to their normal life, but hopefully in a better state. So let's get to our sponsors today. It is Autron Teal, as it is all of the time. And you can go and get your daily polyphenols from Autron Teal, lovemytummy.com. Again, that's lovemytummy.com. You can get your daily polyphenols with Autron Teal for your gut health. If you're an athlete, if you want to make certain that you want a natural antioxidant, get your daily polyphenols at autronteal.com or lovemytummy.com. Get yours today. And last but not least, KBMD Health, kbmdhealth.com. You should really start paying attention to the website because here in a few weeks, there's going to be a big announcement about one of the new products that is now featured on there. And trust me, it's a game changer. You can't really get into it right now. Uh, Let's just say that some trademark things are going on and some protection because of issues with FDA. All good news. But, uh, you know, some really cool stuff is happening at kbmdhealth.com. Check out the store. Uh, be sure and, and uh, check out updated podcast episodes, etc. And as always, thank you for listening to the Gut Check Project. Let's start episode number 63. All right, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family, hope you're having a great day. It's now time for episode number 63. I'm your host, Eric Rieger. Joined by my awesome co-host here, Dr. Kenneth Brown. What's up, Ken? What's going on? Welcome, everybody, to episode 63. Today, I'm just going to let the ADD fly. We're going to cover just a bunch of topics. Okay. Well, you know, we... to include just a couple of them, like uh, psychedelics. Okay. Fasting. Yes. And uh, I want to I want to talk about Rick and Morty. I love Rick and Morty. <laughs> Is that the surprise, Rick and Morty? That's the surprise. I did notice that if you can, if you're watching on video then you can easily see the uh, Pickle Rick poster that we have in the background. And if you're one of the several thousand that only listen to us on uh, iTunes, Spotify, thank you. It's uh, just as awesome for for having you there. So like and share that as well. Yeah, I thought that we would talk a little bit about Rick and Morty because I do have a new artwork there. That's Pickle Rick. Yeah. And we're going to get into this, but I was gifted a plumbus. But uh, I heard this on the way into work. 
Sauce. Rick, Ricky Morty. Rick, Rick, Ricky Morty. Rick, 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 So Soldier Boy has a, uh, <laughs> a new song called Rick and Morty. I was on the way in, I went, <gasps> Rick and Morty. So this is a gift from one of the nurses. And I know you have one of these at your house because everyone has one of these at sure. your house. I was given my own salt and pepper shaker plumbus. And I know that most of you are probably going, oh, I saw how those are made because <laughs> it's a plumbus. It's the only place I've ever seen one. But yes. Yeah. So this is a plumbus. And this is my salt and pepper shaker plumbus. We're just going to leave that just right there. The, um, oh, it's going to break. So that was almost the end of the plumbus. Yeah, so that's what happens when one of your nurses is someplace and sees a plumbus and go, I'm going to get that for Dr. Brown. He'll appreciate it. And then so we had a friend at the Texas State Fair and saw these Rick and Morty Pickle Rick paintings. <laughs> <laughs> so I countered her plumbus with a Pickle Rick painting. So It really is a genius cartoon. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's just absolutely brilliant. It yeah. is. But if somebody turns in late, they're going to be like, what is that on the desk? And they missed the whole introduction. So if, because everybody, but it is a salt and pepper shaker. So one of the funniest parts about getting into what a plumbus is was the fact that they were, they made this parody on the cartoon about how it's made. So if you've ever seen how it's made, I guess it was that on A&E or something. It's on one of those. Like you could just sit there and log on and be like, "Have you ever wondered how like number two pencils are made?" Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And they talk in that monotone. Yeah, and it's all you know. The the wood is brought in from the mill. You know, yeah. all that other kind of stuff. Well, they you can YouTube how a plumbus is made. And how do you spell plumbus? P l u m b u s. P l u m b u s. Plumbus. Everyone has a plumbus. And then at the very end, Rick's like, "Ah, I always wondered how those are made." Yeah, and it's it's great. It's a great episode. It's hilarious. So. And then if anything, it may hook you on Rick and Morty, just that one, just that one little skit. Yeah, no, it's great. So that's a, that, that was my one thing that's, I guess the ADD stopped it. I just wanted to say, I got a pickle Rick. Yeah. I'm pickle Rick and a plumbus and uh, slowly maybe we can acquire more Rick and Morty paraphernalia <laughs> and artwork. Totally down for that. Have my Rick and Morty museum in the end, you know. The Council of Ricks. <laughs> Heck yeah. That's awesome. Uh, man, what have you been up to? We had a little break here because we've been doing some traveling. We did do some traveling. Uh, you know, we went to uh, New Orleans just two weeks ago for an awesome conference with uh, BBW or Baby Bath Water. Um, it was huge for us because we got to, we were finally at, to, at the point where we got to bring Mike. Mike Logs didn't get to join us on the trip. And it was huge to have everybody involved um, in the office part of, of Autron Teal uh, going and, and meeting everyone. I felt like, I felt like it was a, a big step in the, in the right direction for us to really kind of get immersed with a bunch of other creative minds and people who are healthcare entrepreneurs and really work through what we do and help them work through what they do. Yeah. And shout out to that whole team that put that together because they did everything very safe. Everybody had to be tested before oh, yeah. you got there. You were given an antigen test while you were there, just in case you felt like something was coming on, you could check it right away. And they kept it very controlled, masks on if you weren't, uh, you know, eating or drinking. And we got a chance to uh, see quite a bit. In fact, there was an incredible lecture given by a CRNA sitting next to me. What was the uh, topic of your lecture? I don't know if it was incredible or not, but essentially, so let, let me set the stage before I give away the name of the lecture. So at this Healthcare Entrepreneurs Conference, there are several people who 
And if you listen to our show, you know that there are lots of people all over the country and the world which are exploring new ways to address PTSD. And that includes mushrooms, that includes ketamine, it includes therapeutic uses of medicinal marijuana. There's all different kinds of avenues which were kind of taboo until recently on on how to address these things. So as a bunch of these healthcare uh, providers have come up with clinics to help people address their issues that they're trying to treat them for, what is sometimes forgotten are what do you need to do to optimize the patient health-wise so that they have the best experience possible. And in other words, if if someone were to come and visit you, Ken, we would make certain that in order to arrive on time and to have a safe anesthesia experience that they would take their prep and that they would avoid food, et cetera, up until the time that it's, you know, it's time to use the anesthesia. Well, it's really no different if you're going to use a psychedelic substance for a therapy session. You want to make certain that the body is well rested and that the nutrition is optimal and that whatever this agent is that we're going to use, that the body, your body, the patient's body has the tools and mechanisms to recover from the experience so that it's not just a, an exhaustion to, uh, to use the the substance. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And what I really liked that you did with this lecture is that you brought the science to it. Because when we start talking about things like MDMA, ketamine, even cocaine, um, nitric oxide, what else did you cover in that one? Yeah, nitrous, uh, nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide. Um, nitrous um, oxide, psilocybin. Psilocybin, uh, that's right. MDMA, ketamine, uh, cocaine, and... I, I get uh, technically LSD because it, it's uh, kind of an analog of what psilocybin yeah. can do. So I think when a lot of people hear these things, they think that they're street drugs. But that's the cool thing that's going on right now. Now uh, at Johns Hopkins, there's full-on trials looking at treatment of addiction, treatment of PTSD, treatment of depression, having some pretty incredible results. But you took it a step further as a scientist and as a anesthesia provider that you know that these drugs are metabolized in certain ways. And if you don't have sufficient reserves of neurotransmitters, sufficient nutrition to produce these, you can end up with a suboptimal experience or a very bad experience. True. And that was kind of what led to the title of the, um, of the talk, which was an anesthesia provider's guide to safe uh, uh, psychedelic therapy. And essentially, uh, what I kind of came up with, and I don't know that I'm necessarily coining a phrase, I think that's taking it a step too far, but the way I think about it, though, it's it's the economics of neurotransmission, so the economy of a neurotransmitter and what that means. And without getting too nerdy, we've talked about things like acetylcholine, we've talked about things like dopamine and norepinephrine and epinephrine. All of these are just various neurotransmitters, but... Every single one of them has to be synthesized by the nerves in your body. So what does it mean to have them thrown out? What does it mean to have a bunch of serotonin expressed or melatonin expressed? And how does the body recover to reproduce the serotonin that we've, we've made basically more abundant? Or what's the economy of blocking the enzymes that are meant to break down those neurotransmitters? So it's not that the result doesn't have a desired end. It's we still need to recover and return to normal because if it's, if it's a long hangover or something else like that, then 
you may undo or kind of trip up uh, the the benefits of the session. Yeah, but I think as people talk about this more, you know, we refer to this mostly in streets or mostly as a party drug. Right. Oh, yeah. And I remember when I was an intern working in the emergency room, occasionally you would get somebody come in and they'd be seizing and you would ask their friends, like, were you guys doing anything? And they're like, well, we were, we, we were rolling on Molly or we were doing ecstasy. Mm-hmm. And you can get into it because you did it in your lecture about how that can actually affect your electrolytes. And that's why she was seizing. And I didn't even put two and two together. And I went, oh, we just knew that that could be a side effect. And I thought of more of it as a side effect. But no, you could prepare for it and prevent that from happening. 100%. And then, and then planning, okay. So that, that is definitely one facet. How about another one? Um, usually if somebody is getting healthcare uh, intervention from one particular specialist, it doesn't mean that they might not have another one. So you're a gastroenterologist, but somebody else may also have an active, I, I don't know, dermatologist. So it, oftentimes procedures don't necessarily cancel each other out, but sometimes they might. So if somebody, for instance, were going to engage in the use of, I'm just going to pick one, cocaine, you would want to make certain that at least three days time has gone by before they ended up being put under an anesthetic for a procedure. And it's just a safety mechanism because there's a lots of expression of the catecholamines, the things that help keep our blood pressure up, which are could be depleted. And if somebody had an acute uh, cocaine toxicity and then they went in for a, a, uh, an elective procedure, they really are putting themselves at risk for a cardiovascular uh, collapse because they may not have enough there in order to stabilize the blood pressure while they're under anesthesia. So that's an extreme example, but it really is about the concert, kind of as you were kind of describing, sound like to me, of what's the timing and if it's an electrolyte imbalance or a neurotransmitter imbalance or a catecholamine imbalance, et cetera, what is the, what is the balance and what is it that we're, we're looking for? Yeah, so a, a good example. Let's talk about these neurotransmitters because, and obviously Gut Check Project does not condone any type of illicit drug use, but if that is being done there and now they're being researched, let's let's bring this up to the forefront. First of all, the whole idea that you can have an adverse reaction to a standard procedure if mm. you're not honest with your doctor. Right. They're not there to judge you. They're there to make sure that you're going to have the safest possible experience. Definitely. So be honest if you've happened to like do cocaine or something nearby or any other stimulant, to be honest or sedative in the exact same way so that they know this. But something that I found really fascinating in your lecture was the nutritional aspect of what happens when you take a whopping dose of MDMA and what happens afterwards as far as the depletion of neurotransmitters, the oversaturation, all that, because it made so much sense. Yeah, so many times people who will take uh, MDMA or Molly or whatever the, you know, ecstasy, there's all essentially the same thing, but um, it's, it's a form of amphetamine. And the, uh, the physiology of this process is that serotonin, uh, a lo- uh, as well as some, uh, as other cat- uh, catecholamines, but serotonin specifically is then expressed rapidly. And the economy of it is there's actually vesicles which hold these neurotransmitters. Well, guess what? MDMA doesn't destroy it, but it unravels it. So these little serotonins are essentially tucked into a little box, and the MDMA lifts the lid off the box. Yeah, but it, it, 
it almost destroys that little box because so it just smashes it, the box. Yeah, <laughs> if it if it weren't for the the chemical at this point, the nerve normally the the nerve itself normally reuses most of the vesicle over and over again. So the economy of reproducing serotonin or repackaging serotonin back in a vesicle is pretty efficient. And essentially MDMA is making it where it's not nearly as efficient. It's the nerve is basically having to regenerate a full vesicle. So there's one expense. And the second is that MDMA now allows all of the serotonin to be released at a a much more rapid rate. So that's a second expense uh, that that's happened. So so it spills it from the vesicles holding it, and it. then it tells it to just release all of it right now. It yeah. opens the floodgate as, as much as it is, comes in contact with. Yes, and oh, another uh, economic thing that nerves do to try to save energy and time is that once serotonin has been dropped in the synaptic cleft, then the nerve which has released the serotonin actually has proteins that function to grab the serotonin and pump it back into the, uh, the nerve cell. Well, MDMA actually not only blocks that transport protein from doing that action, it runs it in reverse. So the vesicles expressed serotonin to come out, the transporter protein actually picks up whatever serotonin could be remaining in the nerve and throws it out. And now there's no recapture, there's no vesicle, and the serotonin has been spent. So that is fascinating because normally your body has safeguards. Yeah. So you have a traffic cop that's there going, whoa, 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 okay, enough serotonin. You go back in mm-hmm. and pushes it back in in this protein. MDMA turns a traffic cop into some sort of shuttle bus. Yeah. Where it says not only are you not going back in, let's all go this way. Yeah. And guides everybody that way. So it tricks it tricks the body into that. It definitely – it. it for a brief period of time, and brief is relative, but yeah, uh, it definitely tricks the body into, especially serotonin, serotonergic nerves specifically with MDMA, but a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine as well, but definitely, definitely serotonin. And then that's, that's the, uh, the flood of euphoria that someone experiences, but the lack of having enough neurotransmitter like that available and Truly, the expense of having to regenerate all the serotonin leaves someone who, who's gone through uh, a, a session of MDMA is fatigued, tired, certainly irritable, is, is, a, is a common, you know, you don't feel good, right? You don't have the serotonin that was, that was there um, to deal with that. So that imparts a problem. And actually, there's a fourth mechanism that's disrupting the economy there, and that is that the... Uh, MAO's uh, enzyme, the monamine oxidase, which breaks down uh, serotonin into its composite parts, because roughly that protein that was transporting it back into the nerve usually captures around, it's ballpark, 40 to 50% of the serotonin that's been dumped into the cleft. Well, it's not picking it up, and now it's not being broken down by the the, uh, enzyme in the cleft there. So, because it's been blocked, its activity has been blocked, and cocaine also does the same type of blockage as well. But uh, regardless, so that's the fourth. And then the fifth and final cost is whenever you use a neurotransmitter, it has to hit a receptor. And receptors, which are overstimulated, and you can imagine if you're flooding an area, it's going to be overstimulated, 
then the receiving nerve basically can withdraw the uh, the receptor, the protein that functions down, as the receptor. Just down regulating. It's called itself. yeah, it's called down regulating. So down regulating occurs, and that's not a real uh, high expense to the nerve itself, but for the emotions that maybe you're trying to elicit because you're feeling kind of down, there just may not be enough receptors there to receive the message for what little serotonin that you do have to make that happen. So there's, there's definitely a, a biological economy, which is disrupted. And MDMA is a great study to see what that's like. Cocaine is all of that stuff, but, but increased by a factor because it's just far more intense and it hits dopamine far more regularly than does MDMA, which that actually plays into a different scenario where you now develop habit. Oh, so, you know, remember dopamine gives you, it's, it's not quite pleasurable like serotonin, but it definitely has drive. It definitely has habit built into so it. So dopamine and serotonin with cocaine. Oh yeah. Dopamine, serotonin and uh, norepinephrine with cocaine. So, but cocaine's more universal. Wow. It sounds like a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Rick James. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, but anyhow, so that was a little bit of how we, we decided to talk about that because for all of the expense that I'm talking about, I, I do firmly believe, certainly with the research they've had here recently, that there's lots of headway here that people are making with dealing with um, PTSD and therapy along with some of these agents to get people to break down these barriers that they can't really get through. I would love to. So I was listening to uh, Huberman Lab, and he had the psychologist on that's doing these studies at Johns Hopkins, and mm -hmm. they were discussing this. What he did not discuss at all was pre-nutrition, post-recovery. I do know that at least in the study, if they're going to look at MDMA, they keep them for a day, actually with all of them, they keep them a day or two afterwards to keep an eye on them. But in that same episode of the Huberman lab, he actually talked about one time he got like a super bad gastroenteritis or something. And he just had uncontrollable diarrhea to the point where he had to go into the emergency room and he was given, and I forgot what it was. Cause I remember I'm like, why would you ever use that for diarrhea? But it was like Thorazine or some of these, one of these old school, antipsychotics that has potent uh, 5-HTP antagonist, meaning serotonin, because you have serotonin in the gut. Yeah. And he described, he goes, I knew immediately what was going on. I was falling into a deep, deep, deep depression. Uh-huh. And I knew that they had just, I said, did you give me this? And they said, yes. And he goes, you just depleted all of my serotonin, or you blocked all my serotonin. So then he had them give them either 5-HTP IV or even some tryptophan Tryptophan. Yeah, to try and replenish that. But it was funny because it happened that quick, and he described it on his podcast where he's like, it was the first time I could see how depression could be so, so much despair, so much oh, burden, yeah. so much heaviness, and it's a neurotransmitter process. Yeah. Which gets you really thinking. You're like, now, wait a minute. So as we have these people that battle depression, well, depression runs in my family. Okay, well, I've got a lot of bad life situations. Okay, but should we be addressing this from a nutritional standpoint and a lifestyle standpoint and see if we can pump up? Maybe you're not, maybe you don't have the proper nutritional status to produce enough serotonin or you're genetically predisposed to not produce enough. So you got to overshoot it a little bit and hedge your bet. I don't um, know. It's stuff to think about. No, I think it's huge. I mean, and, and what's funny is really everything really began uh, for this particular talk all began with with making certain that your subject that you're treating or whomever happens to have a lot of rest.
because rest obviously is how the body is going to do the the best work at reproducing neurotransmissions and and I'm, I'm sorry neurotransmitters and preparing the body for the next day so a big day of rest is is a big player for someone to have probably quote unquote the best experience um, another thing though is it's not only the nutrition oftentimes it's about the time the timing of the meals for instance you just highlighted the diarrhea aspect of of a serotonin surge mm -hmm. well if you were to have a serotonin surge and you had a full stomach or you'd recently eaten you run the risk of throwing up or having diarrhea again so somebody who's had like a large um a uh, serotonin surge from MDMA and they've got lots of contents in their GI tract, you, you run the risk of doing that. And you've said this multiple times that greater than 80% of all the serotonin is produced in the gut. And for good reason, it's because the gut uses it. So that I felt like was just in as much as we don't want people to eat too closely to being put under for anesthesia, you actually could, prevent a bad episode by making certain that someone doesn't con consume certainly not a large meal before engaging in something like that that makes total sense on something that is trivial but now it makes more sense to me i'm not don't do a whole lot of those recreational drugs yeah. and so i don't really understand it when they make references in movies <laughs> do you remember the movie horrible bosses one oh. colin farrell was the son they were in the house and he had a bunch of cocaine everywhere and I forgot the actor's name, but the guy that plays Charlie on Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, Charlie. Charlie. Yeah, I think his name is Charlie. Yeah, Charlie Day. Charlie. Charlie Day. They were. He was with Jason Bateman, and they were like trying to find something in the house, but they had spilled this big bag of coke, so it was like all over. Uh huh. And so they were getting all hyper, and they were doing everything. And he's just like, man. He's like, this is great. We gotta do this. He's like, oh my god, I gotta go take a poop. And he's like, yeah, me too. And I was like, what does that have any relevance? Now it does. Hi. Yeah, I've yeah. not seen that movie in a long time. But that's yeah. when the third guy, Jason Sudeikis, comes in. He's like, you guys are high on cocaine. That's what's going on. He's <laughs> like, it's in the air. You exploded his bag. I didn't even think of that until right now. Yeah, yeah, just now you said that because I was always like, what does having taking a poop have to do with it? Interesting. Yeah, makes sense. And then I've actually talked to people when they come in for severe constipation mm -hmm. and I'll say like, what actually helps? And they'll be honest. They'll be like, well, back in the day, if I did cocaine, I could go to the bathroom. In fact, I would just do a little, I would just do a little bit. I could, I could use the restroom. I'm like, huh? I didn't even, I was like, oh, it must be a stimulant like coffee or something. But now this makes way more sense. It's yeah. all about the serotonin. Yeah, no, but, it is. And that, that that's, that's a, a cautionary aspect of doing that for sure. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, and that's the reason. Huh? So serotonin is a real thing. <laughs> that was funny. Well, I thought it was a great lecture. And I think that Thanks. it's, I think it's just really tip of the iceberg because as we head towards this as medicinal things, mm -hmm. we're going to have to treat it like that. And quite honestly, I started thinking about it with everything, all the pharmacologic agents that we use, they don't really get into that. So we have drugs like Zelnorm and Motegrity, which actually affect 5-HT, which is a serotonin receptor in the gut. Can you get a better benefit of that if it, if you're nutritionally in a different position, if you're taking a supplement that might augment it, I don't know. I'm wouldn't you have to though? And wouldn't you, and a lot of it in researching a lot of this stuff or becoming re-familiar with a lot of these topics uh, for this thing that we did in New Orleans. One thing that kept triggering in my mind though, even though uh, there are medicinal things to help elicit these responses, 
I couldn't help but wonder in each little scenario as we broke it down molecularly, how much of this couldn't just be tied back to someone who just doesn't know better, but their diet is actually hindering their ability to recover. It just seemed like there were pieces of it where they're, that somebody was just missing the boat a little bit, or maybe they were eating enough of the right food that would help their body produce the neurotransmitter, but maybe they were eating another food which was blocking its ability to be broken down correctly, like maybe a high-press seed oil or something like that was preventing the correct absorption of tryptophan. Like, How would a high-press seed oil do that? I don't know. I know. <laughs> I don't. This was a maybe. I didn't have time to dig that one out. So I'm glad you called me out on that one, too. I just got excited. I was like, oh, my yeah. gosh. There's, no, I know. I don't know. I mean, I'm just curious. I just know that, that uh, for, uh, I believe that the mechanism for tryptophan in, in order to be... Uh, Absorb. There's a couple of enzymatic processes that have to happen. But when we used to t- talk about cottonseed oil and vegetable oil, it often, it oftentimes talked about our body's resources were were used trying to break down those oils. And I was wondering if that might not prevent some of the enzymes necessary for absorption for some of these other essential amino acids or whatever it is to be brought to to be brought into our circulation to make these neurotransmitters i don't know that oh that's super interesting because now we're getting back to our space again where we talk about gut health yeah. and if you're eating a highly processed diet where you have emulsifiers and you got high fructose corn syrup and you've got these things that are actually causing micro damage yeah leading to inflammation which will lead to neuroinflammation which will hypersensitize then if you were to try and manipulate now let's get, let's take that let's take that step back we're talking about these drugs but we've got a whole class of antidepressants antipsychotics called SSRIs serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors right but we never sit with these people and go let's discuss your inflammation and that and that SSRIs in themselves it seems like such a broad stroke i don't want to get into that because i know that there are a lot of people who de- who depend upon those and if they work then i I couldn't be happier, but they seem like such a large hammer for what's not always a nail, it seems like. Well, it is definitely broad stroke, and there's big money in it, and we know that uh, there's it's a nuanced, yeah. I do want to get back to something, though, because you, you just glossed over a second thing, which I think is a, is is separate, but but tied to the, the cottonseed oil and, and different uh, types of oils like that. So one would be the occupation of the body's ability to make the right enzymes to, to break something down. The second though, and you hit it right on is inflammation. So if you have an inflamed gut and we talk about the gut brain axis quite a bit, this did, this, this thought did cross my mind and I I forgot to mention it to you, but if you have an inflamed gut, then you know, your absorption is tied up somewhat. It doesn't work nearly as it should. And so if the body is dependent upon uh, tryptophan, for instance, and this is an easy one to talk about, but uh, in order for tryptophan to be absorbed and its ability to be absorbed is being hindered because there happens to be inflammation, wouldn't it stand to reason that if I can't absorb enough tryptophan to go into circulation to make serotonin in my gut, it's also affecting the ability for the serotonergic nerves in my brain to get that same amount of tryptophan because it's simply not in circulation. So in essence, another tieback between gut health and brain health would be that the interference of absorption of just the simple amino acids necessary to make neurotransmitters plays a role 
and not allowing someone to be as happy as they possibly could or uh, circumvent depression because they just aren't absorbing enough of the precursors to make these neurotransmitters, which are necessary. Yeah. I mean, it all plays in there. That's, but we don't, we don't discuss that in, no. in basically mental health. No. And what happens when we take care of inflammation? You rest more, you absorb better. I mean, obviously inflammation goes down in the gut, so you can simply take in more nutrients. So let's get back to the rest thing real quick, because we now know that you have what's called a glymphatic system in your brain. Mm. And while you sleep and you go through these deep waves, that special lymphatic system specifically for your brain shuttles toxic materials or inflammasomes out of your body so you can get rid of them. Mm -hmm. So if you're not sleeping, you're not doing that. So, and, and just to tell them why it's glymphatic instead of just lymphatic. The, glymphatic? Yeah. Named after the Nobel Prize winner, Glenn Podarsky. I, I have no idea. I don't think that's glymphatic. it. I think, I think it has to, I thought, I, I really didn't mean to put you on the spot. I thought it was for uh, glial cells. Yes. Okay. Yes. It's lymph for the glial cells. That's okay. right. All right. But yeah, but but if but I if, like Glim Podowski better, Glim Podowski, <laughs> if, if a Glim Podowski exists, please email me and we'll send yeah. you a a plumbus. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna get two plumbi, <laughs> two plumbi. Yeah, uh, the plural of plumbus. I like it. <laughs> that's your that's your mom's English background coming out in you. Yeah, she'll be really proud when she watches this episode for sure. <laughs> <laughs> There's my son talking about drugs. <laughs> All those years of education. Yeah, that's what it is. Man, well, I think that's super cool, and it just gets people thinking. Even if we use that example to drag people over to maybe we can help with depression, maybe we can help with anxiety. Oh, yeah. But using the mechanisms of those drugs tells us a ton. Yeah. And when I've talked to people that have done ecstasy, they're like, man, it it was amazing while I was doing it. But the next day, Mm -hmm. I was so depressed Mm -hmm. that I refused to ever do it again. Sure. Because the lingering, it's like getting such a bad hangover that you'll never touch alcohol again. It's a pretty common, uh, it's a pretty common occurrence for people. And I, and I do think, and then talking to some people who do have experience with, with this, uh, I didn't talk as extensively with Jack Alaka, but I, obviously he's got a lot of experience with helping people build these, these practices. But, uh, Jennifer Tippett, um, out of Colorado, she's, she's definitely, um, an advocate for making certain that her, Patients are prepared before they come in. And this is, and this is why you don't want, nobody wants a patient that comes in and has a, a, a perfect, ex, or a perfect exam or a perfect procedure. And then afterwards they've, they've just got this hangover. that's just like, oh man, what a, what a beat down. That's, that's not the point. The point is to help you and, and, and ease you back into, to life. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that the sleep doctor came to your lecture because oh, he realizes yeah. how important Michael. sleep is yeah michael michael bray yeah he's that guy's pretty brilliant in his own right yeah super smart guy psychologist one of the only psychologists in the world that passed the sleep board yeah so he's a psychologist a sleep board which i think is fascinating because he's able to connect all these dots that we're trying to do right now he was there and he was bringing that up he's like when if you don't have this sleep if you don't get into that that deep wave, you're going to heal the brain in this stage. You're going to heal the body in this stage and so on. Oh, you know what? Let's, let's talk about him real quick though, because I actually had a piece. Michael Bray. Yeah. And, and, and you and I were, uh, discussing the idea of allowing, allowing someone to help themselves get a better baseline of acetylcholine so they can have good, good dreams. And then he pointed out, he said, that's great. Unless 
you have somebody who has PTSD. And I found that fascinating. He said, because you will enhance with uh, Huperzine A. Yeah, Huperzine A. You technically... Which is an anticholinesterase inhibitor. Inhibitor, right. Yeah. And that you could actually enhance uh, night terrors in someone who has historically bad dreams because of PTSD. So Hooper's, and I found that to be great. And we had, we had maybe touched on it in the past, but he had a very vivid description on why Hooperzine A, although a great drug or use, might not be ideal for someone with uh, with PTSD if you're just trying to enhance better sleep through REM, et cetera. Yeah, I just confused myself. Um, did I say anticholinesterase inhibitor? I think that's a double negative. Yeah. So it's a cholinesterase inhibitor, not Cholin. an anticholinesterase. Yeah, inhibitor. it would be a cholinesterase. It's a cholinesterase inhibitor. Cholinesterase inhibitor. Yeah. Which breaks down acetylcholine. Yes. So it allows acetylcholine to live longer. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Not the no, no. Yeah. Double negative. Never. Cholinesterase inhibitor. Never not that. Yeah. No. Never, never, <laughs> never not that. <laughs> Fascinating stuff, though, because this just gets back into our brain gut stuff. All of it. All of it. I mean, if we can figure out how to protect the brain, ultimately, that is truly my mission is protecting the brain through the gut. Just like when we had um, Christine Villemure oh, with yeah. the Biohack Your Brain. Yeah. She's starting with the brain and then realizing that the gut is necessary also. Yeah. And so it's it works. It's a two-way, two-way thing. That's really cool. So did you go to any other lectures that you enjoyed? Oh yeah, we we went to uh, I went and saw Dave Lacani and um, Katie Wells, Wellness Mama, uh, Michael Bray, and it seems like someone else was up there. I'm, I'm leaving somebody out, but they talked about um, the appropriate way and the right way to make certain that when you have a health or medical ideal or principle, and the the way to make certain that it's portrayed. And this is quite timely, portrayed effectively. Inappropriately in the media, which I thought was was fascinating because there there were a lot of people there who have either lots of uh, patients as constituents or followers, etc. But everyone who's there is very legit, and um, it it isn't what anybody wants to do to be put into a platform which is going to make what they say disingenuous or misrepresent. Their position. You mean from like a media take from it? Is what yeah, no, a media take, or the, or sometimes it could be unintentional. It could be the the wrong, the right person, right idea going on with yet another great representative or interviewer. But oftentimes, not oftentimes, sometimes the the audiences could clash because the I don't know the uh, the story isn't set for that person to come and tell it to that audience yet for it to not be understood correctly. Yeah. Yeah, so. it's just such a sensitive time. There's well, so it, many ways to have exposure. It, because it's a sensitive time is really what prompted it to happen. Um, they And they used some timely things of doctors who've been quite well respected, who've more or less, I shouldn't say pushed against the, the national narrative, but don't necessarily subscribe to everything that you would see on a traditional news broadcast. And yeah. they kind of been cast aside or discounted, even though they've got 30 years of a strong body of work because they asked the wrong questions in the wrong forum. They simply got dismissed. And this uh. is about protecting, protecting a, an otherwise completely altruistic position. Yeah. I was seeing a different lecture. It, by any chance, any of those doctors that got cast aside, were any of them holding a plumbus? At the time, you are in luck. Okay, not a single one. <laughs> yeah. 
Not a single one of them. Yeah, so that's a. I just want to make sure. I would. I would hate for Plumbuses to then be singled out as some sort of representation of some movement. No, I, I think, fortunately for you, it only means that you watch Rick and Morty <laughs> and that you like salt and pepper. <laughs> so. They were a really good rap group. Salt and pepper. Yeah, I, I, that, that was not a rap group. It was salt and pepper, <laughs> sir. <laughs> Do you, have you seen that John Mulaney set where he talked about when he was a writer on SNL? And he just goes, famous people are weird. They had George Picard on. And he does no. this imitation of George Picard, you know, from Star Wars and, and uh, you know, the Sir George Picard or whatever. Yeah. And he goes, when he announced the musical guest, it was Salt and Pepper. He goes, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Salt and Pepper and drug out Pepper for a long time. And Mulaney does it. It's hilarious. And we're all just backstage going, is he going to end Pepper? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I, don't think I've, I don't think I've seen that. I thought you were going to talk about John Mulaney and Salt and Pepper Diner. Oh, the, the, the Tom Jones? Yeah, <laughs> that is good. That is good. Um, so while you were doing that, I went to a really cool lecture. Oh, first of all, I want to point this out because I, I want to get the audience's perspective on this because I kind of want to do this. I'm wearing a Wanderer bracelet. Um, ben Katzman, I had dinner with him. Mm -hmm. And this is really cool. He... I think was in business, did something, did well with it, and then kind of took a bit of a walkabout and sort of traveled the world. Ended up in a small village in Bali and found these artisans hand carving, um, well, really, like jewelry and things like that, out of buffalo, water buffalo horns. Yeah, that's it, cool. Really cool. And then him and I got to talking, and, and he said, well, the, the reason why I did it isn't so much because I'm into fashion. It's because... He is now employing like 30% of this otherwise completely impoverished village. Oh, that's awesome. And so I contacted his company, which is Wanderer Bracelet, and I'm looking at um, ordering some and giving them to, I want to do it either for, I just want to know if people will wear it. Because to me, this represents way more, that is a hand carved, in this case, it's an anchor that he gave to me. He just put it on me, didn't ask. He's like, give me your wrist. He's like, that right there has been hand-carved by a Bali artisan and then shipped, da, 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 and then these people do this, and then these people, he goes, I employ half the village or 30% of the village. So it's a huge part of this particular village's economy. It's got a great story, and it's an actual um, animal. And so it was funny because when I was emailing, they're like, this is what you have to do, and I was talking with their people, and I was like, scalable, like all things. When we do Atron Teal, it's like, okay, if you order 100000 it's this price. If you order $10 million, it's this price. Mm. And it was very, she was very blunt. She's just like, we pay the people the same. They just work more. So it doesn't really, you don't really get like this massive discount because yeah. it's not for that. Yeah. It's to, it's so that you can walk around, tell a story, and they can represent. So I was thinking about it, maybe even getting GI Alliance, my company. Oh, yeah. So we can get their little symbol there and everybody that gets a screening colon, we put that in their folder, and you wear that, and then that is a representation. I don't know. I just want to ask the question, would this be something that people would wear? Personally, I like it a lot. I like the message behind it, but I don't want to be – I don't – I mean, you'll see me and be like, hey, how are those bracelets going? I'm like, oh, I ordered a 1,000. <laughs> up and down my arm like a sleeve. <laughs> Apparently, I'm the only guy that likes it. No, I'm sure that's not it because I think it's a hugely successful company, and they're doing great work. Yeah. But. No, they're really cool. In fact, he even makes uh, he even made the uh, the attendee access bracelets too, and it's kind of cool because and I, I know they have the ability to do it because they've done it two meetings in a row where he puts the longitudinal and 
latitude. Yeah, latitudinal yeah. Uh, coordinates on there. And I don't remember what bone that was either. Yeah, that was, if it's white, it's this. But it's these animals that, you know, that perish and they're not out there killing them. No, they're not they killing just, them. They yeah. just round, they round up these horns and things and they're able to make use of it and they recycle yeah. it and they do this. And if you go to their website, wanderer, uh, bracelet.com, I believe. And it shows how they actually do this, the tools that they, that they give them to do it. And it's just really cool. So I don't know. I'm just curious, like if people would be interested, I would like to either get KBMD one done, Atrantil one done, GI Alliance or all three. And yeah, really kind idea. of, I think it's really cool. No, it's very it's cool. And it, cool. and it, it's, it's supporting someone else. That's another altruistic thing that we could do. Yeah. It's kind of cool. The um, the lecture I wanted to talk about because it's made a little bit of an impact on me was Rian Doris's. Oh, Rian Doris yeah. is a neuroscientist PhD who is the COO of the uh, Flow Research Collective. The Flow Research Collective. And what they do is they study flow state. Flow state being how do you, I guess it's defined by a bunch of different things, but really there is a scientific definition of it. Mm-hmm. I'm learning that was the first time getting there, listening to some of this in his lecture, but it is the ability to be in the moment, mm-hmm. maximize your brain power on whatever it is that you're doing at the moment, but you learn techniques and tools to do it. Obviously, my interest um, would be in utilizing flow state while I'm at work while I'm doing procedures, utilizing flow state while we're doing creative for uh, KBMD and Atrantil. And then the kids, being able to teach my kids, you can get into a flow state when you're on the court. That would just be fascinating. Right. And as he was talking, he goes, oh, I recommend a book for everybody who's got this great Irish accent or Scottish. Is he Scottish or Irish? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, he's got a great accent and great public speaker. And he said, I recommend everybody get a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And then that just piqued my interest. I was like, oh, he goes, it's about tennis, but really it's not about tennis. It's about controlling that inner mind. And if you can learn to control that inner mind, self one, then self two goes. Self two is the flow state. So like when we talk about like athletes that get in the zone or they're, or they're playing unconscious, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the Michael Jordan just draining threes back in the day where he talked about it. He's like, the hoop looked this big. I just couldn't miss it. Just totally in a zone, that kind of thing. And when people get like that, imagine learning how to do it and so his lecture was a few tips it was just a real gloss over type thing and a couple of things he talked about like for instance determine if you're a lark or an owl and then there's in between he had a different one but i was interested in that because we essentially genetically are predisposed to peak our brain function either um in the morning or more in the evening Mm -hmm. and when we force people when we force an owl to take a job like a lark, which is a morning person, they struggle. Yeah. And they struggle really hard. Now, I'm a lark, so I wake up at, at 4.30, and I'm really efficient in the morning. But, man, as the day goes on, I'm just like, I just, compl- so I can't do any work after I get home. Like, I just, uh, because it's, it's, it takes, it's stressful for me because it takes me longer to do everything, and that, that makes total sense. So determine if you're a lark. Are you a lark or an owl? Oh, definitely a lark. I mean, I've tried to be the owl, uh, you know, doing night shift. I mean, it, I was miserable. I, that, that's a terrible existence for me. Yeah. And there are some people who love that. You know who loves that? Hollis Carter. Really? Hollis is definitely an owl. Um, he, he, I can't remember where we were standing, but even down here in New Orleans, we got into a discussion about how he doesn't schedule meetings. And uh, I'm trying to remember the cutoff time. He doesn't have his big 
meetings for the day. I don't think till like eleven thirty is when he will eleven thirty in the morning is when he will have his first agreed upon. And I could be off by a time a little bit, but it's something like that. Yeah, and he'll carry on through the rest of the day because that's when he is geared to be the most productive. That's so. That was the first thing, and then um, from a neuroscientist point of view, and Huberman has talked about this. You really are. You really can only focus for ninety minutes. At ninety minutes, you do a hard break, no matter what. Even if you're in like, like really going, you want to stop at ninety minutes. And then this was interesting. You need to shut off the prefrontal cortex. You do not want to stimulate it. Mm. So the worst thing you can do is go. I'm going to take a break, hop on your phone, and start scrolling Facebook. Oh yeah. Or start reading emails, or start doing anything like that. Rian actually said, he goes, really what I recommend is you take a 90-minute break, you walk up to a blank wall, and you stare at it. Just stare at it. And because all you're doing is just trying to get that prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. to replete the acetylcholine, to start making more serotonin, to start producing more dopamine, even the little 15 minutes that you're doing this, but just stare at a blank wall. So I've gotten in the habit that in the morning where I do this, so I've got a lot of charts I have to do, and then we've got other, you know, whatever, answer emails and stuff. When I take the break, you know, I used to scroll phone or whatever. Now I'll just go lay in traction and just breathe. Interesting. For like 15 minutes. Yeah. And then I come back and I just start, you know, crushing it again. I like that a lot. Um, and then this was interesting to delineate recovery from work. Recovery is not relaxation. Recovery is very specific, and he got into sleep. He's like, recovery is super important. Just everything that you just talked about, mm-hmm. he got into it getting into a flow state. So all these things that we're talking about, and in fact, I'm getting a little ahead. He didn't talk about it in the meeting. I don't, I don't remember in his lecture, but I've gotten a little bit further into this whole flow state, and they actually have shown um, uh, functional MRI mapping it, people on psychedelics and people in flow state, and there's lots of almost complete overlap in creativity and in memory, but the psychedelics have the, um, the unique experiences that psychedelics oh, do. Okay. You know? And so, but you can achieve a lot of the similar success getting into flow state as you would a psychedelic. So that, that got me super intrigued. Um, another thing he discussed was framing. So framing matters to your brain. If you frame that it's not a stress, and I want to talk about that in a second about fasting. If you frame that it's not a stress, you will believe that it's not a stress. Your brain can handle it. And your brain can actually get benefit from it. A couple of small examples. He didn't use this, but I've read this before, where they've taken um, a rat and made it uh, run on a treadmill when another rat would get on and off the treadmill. Mm-hmm. So the rat was kind of stuck on the treadmill. It could eat and stuff. Mm-hmm. But every time the other rat hopped on, he had to run with the other rat, whether he wanted to or not. The rat that ran when it wanted to actually metabolically got healthier. The rat that was doing it against its will got sicker because the perception was it was a stressor, or at least cortisol, resulted in more inflammation, led to poorer health. So if you're going to do anything and it's good for you, believe that it's good for you, and you can actually lean into it like fasting. And... If you want to turn on your parasympathetics, so if you're really stressed out and you're having a hard time achieving this, this comes into the part that you and I love, you can put yourself in a controlled stressful situation, which ultimately will turn on your parasympathetics for a longer period. In other words, sauna, 
and or cold therapy. Yeah. When you're, if you're really stressed, you do that because now you're controlling the stress. You're turning on the dope. You're going to create a dopamine kick later. Mm-hmm. And after you have that sympathetic surge, you're going to have a longer delayed parasympathetic surge where you can be calm. So it's almost counterintuitive. You're like, I'm so stressed. Why would I make my life more miserable? No, totally to the contrary. Jump in an ice bath and watch what happens. So, and he was talking and it was all science. He's a super sciencey guy. I really like that. Um, and then we started, he started getting into burnout a little bit. And that's something that we're dealing with tomorrow. Me and Dr. Item and Dr. Ackerman are going to talk to our staff because it's been a very difficult time during these periods where we're having trouble finding people uh, for work and stuff. And he said, you know, start looking for early signs of burnout. One of the earliest signs is cynicism. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it's not so much anger or, you know, all this stuff, but it's just being cynical towards yeah. it. That's the earliest sign. And once you start seeing that, then you need to take a break, back off. If you're being cynical towards your job or towards anything, you got to, you know, get it. And ultimately, there's nothing, he said, that using praise publicly and specifically does incredible things to the neurotransmitters for your employees. So if you have an employee, very specifically say, I'm... I want everybody to notice something. Hadil just did a great job getting these 10 people in for colonoscopies, even though she was a little overwhelmed. Thank you so much for doing that. And we don't do that enough. Or no. I don't. I don't think any of us do. I don't see a whole lot of public praising going on. Most of the time it's, can I have a word with you? Hey, you did a really good job. Keep it up. You know what, though? I would I would counter that, and I'm just going to say this about you in particular. So even today, we, today we had a great day at, at work but a lot of that was because of and and uh the, well we have great technicians up there at the endo center right now anyway but sophia today played a huge role in helping us fill gaps making sure the patients were happy and i noticed when you do it because you do it frequently but like today for instance you actually do go out of your way to tell sophia or uh or anna or kinsey or any of Peter, any of those technicians up there who are really great at what they do, that they made the day better. And I think it actually goes a long way. And I enjoy hearing other people pay compliments like that. So actually, you you maybe you downplay that you do it, but I, I notice that you I'm going to try and do it more, but not disingenuous. Like he said very specifically, if you're genuine about it, you produce your own sure reward yeah because you know that you're trying to look for that and then you're helping that and it's just going to lead to more success so the more that you can specifically say good job in there and so i i thought all those i thought all of it was cool enough and then i talked to him afterwards and you know you hung out with him he's like this super charming guy yeah hey uh, uh re and the j is silent anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> So I ended up calling, uh, I ended up reaching out to his company. So I spent about two hours with one of his colleagues in Australia. So shout out to Cameron Gallagher, um, like a equally cool Rian Doris um, person for the research collective, the Flow Research Collective. What was really cool about him is we hit it off because he played high level tennis. Mm. And so he was talking about, man, if he had learned this stuff back when he was a competitive <laughs> tennis player, yeah, he was talking about how he used to lose his cool and all that other stuff. And so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to dabble in those courses. I'm, I think I'm going to jump in to the flow research collective and see how it goes. I think I want to do it also. Uh, and, and Rian is, I mean, the guy's great. He's, 
he's just a, a genuine person in his own right. Period. Yeah. And uh, uh, Coulter, uh, Dr. Coulter, the author, is the guy that started it. And he's brilliant. He's written multiple books. And apparently, like, actors and public speakers and, like, real public speakers, you know, like politicians and stuff, they all learn from this kind of stuff. Because if you can get on, if you're... If you're Tony Robbins, you get into your flow state, you do your NLP, your anchoring and all this stuff, that's all related to flow state. That's all tricking your brain into going, we're on now. Everything else goes away. We're on now. So really, I, I think it's super fascinating. But So leaning into stuff. This is what I did recently. And this is the final thing I want to talk about a little bit is fasting. I just came off a five-day fast. And it went well. And I did it because I had my colonoscopy on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. It's my third colonoscopy. Shout out to Dr. Osvaldo Fajardo, my colleague, who was kind enough to do me and Loida on a Saturday. Nice. And we're doing a few Saturdays uh, at our center also. So if yeah. you need a colonoscopy, uh, there's we, we've got Saturdays. Me and my colleagues are doing some Saturdays to make sure everybody gets done because yeah. it's important. Um, oh, you know what? This is really cool. And I think you've you've met him. But his son, Nick, his son, Nick Fajardo, trained Lucas uh-huh. for a bit. He is, he got, um, he got his degree, he got his master's degree in um, sports and conditioning. Mm-hmm. And right now, he is a strength and conditioning coach for the Giants Farm League, the Eugene Emeralds in Scottsdale. And um, Osvaldo showed me, he's got his own baseball card. Wow. Yeah, it's so cool. cool. Yeah, this is the guy that trained Lucas when he was like fresh out of college, and now he's a strength and conditioning coach. And on the card, it's really funny because it says a little bio on the back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it says a couple takeaways. It's that, that he can bench press 315 pounds and has a dog named Dak after Dak Prescott. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. I like, um, love seeing that. Uh, you know, our kids are growing up and you're seeing, you know, children of our friends, maybe a little older, helping them out. And that's what that's what Nick did for Lucas, trained him. And then now he's a strength and conditioning coach. And of course, we did the MLB uh, strength and conditioning yeah. back in the day. So so all of this kind of leads up to this one thing about fasting that mm-hmm. I just wanted to say, because leaning into the fast, I knew that it was going to be difficult, but it was borderline enjoyable. I had tons of energy because I was like, oh, my gosh, I was. I told myself it wasn't a stressor. I knew that it was going to make me um, healthier. And then yesterday, two days ago, mm-hmm. two articles just came out on fasting, both of them in the same uh, journal, the Nature and Metabolism. Just really quick, but it makes total sense. The first one is fasting may offer health benefits beyond dieting experiment in mice. So these are mouse models. But what they did show is they took two groups of mice and they allowed um, the total calories and the composition of calories mm-hmm. So the fat and sugar were the same. They allowed one group of mice to eat that total calories, like whenever they wanted or they grazed throughout the day. The other uh, group of mice, they did it in a restricted window. They got to eat all their food in one sitting. And what they showed was that the group of mice that were able to graze all day long, same amount of calories, same composition. I know where we're going. Yeah. They actually... Uh, metabolically had insulin resistance. They developed more fat. They actually had inflammatory markers go up. And the other group of mice that just ate the exact same thing in a restricted window actually decreased inflammatory markers, preserved lean mass, lost body fat. Now, wrap your brain around that. Now, these are mice. Keep that in mind. But it's when we talk about 
everybody talks about, oh, don't eat this, don't eat that. You know, what if it's just don't eat it all day, even though it's the same. Like, here's, a, here's this bowl of food, and you just kind of munch on it all day long. Those, those mice did way worse than the, the group of mice where they just gave the bowl at one time. And so that's something to think about. So in humans, there's no large studies with this, but that comes down to the intermittent fasting part of it. I personally feel better when I do intermittent fasting, and that's just um, that's just how I I like it, and I think it's everybody's different. But mouse models like this give you incentive to try and do something. Totally like that. agree. And I like the whole leading up to it. My dopamine is rising, and I'm like, "Ooh, what am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat?" And then you just eat, yeah. And then you're like, "Ooh, I'm full." Okay, and then you're done. Um, they did say, and in, in defense of the researchers that. A, a comparable human experiment would need to have humans eat all their calories they need for a week in one day. This is comparable because of the mouse metabolism. Oh. And then starve for the next six days. So it's like you get one day a week to eat as much as you can, and then you can't eat for six days, which... Is it good food? I don't know. I, don't know, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that might be the, the player. I don't, I don't know. know. Who knows? But anyways... Mice only live about two years, and so that's how come they were trying to extrapolate it. You know? <laughs> I, I think that, I think that kind of ruined the whole the whole story. Trying to say, ah, well, in humans it does this, but I get it. Researchers are trying to you know tap the brakes, and then um, here's another one. So our good friend Walter Longo, mm. the d- developer of the fasting mimicking diet, he published also in this one. He's got a new study here where they looked at fasting in the body. And what they're looking at now with mice would be the fasting mimicking diet, which essentially tricks your body into thinking that it's fasting completely. I did a water fast for five days. Uh, you can do Prolon, which has the small amounts of, of food and certain caloric ratios that does the fasting mimicking diet. They did the fasting mimicking diet with these mice, two different groups. And what they did show is that they fed both groups basically crap food. They fed them a high sugar, high fat diet, and they took for four weeks, which, I don't know, do the math in this. If they only live two years and it's one month, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a it's the, big percentage. It'd of be like life. saying, Eric, you're going to eat like crap for like five years. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Supersize me. Yeah. yeah. Just completely do that. So that's what they did with these mice. And what they, um, it was really fascinating because what they showed is that intervening with the mice, then they took one group of mice and they made them fast for five days afterwards. And then they checked all the blood parameters and body composition and everything. And across the board, the mice that fasted for five days reversed all the damage that had been done for four weeks. Wow. So for four weeks, they just beat their bodies up eating crab. And then the one group fasted for five days and they went back to baseline. In fact, they improved it to the point where they maintained lean muscle mass they lost body fat, and then they went back on the diet. And so what they were doing is cycling them every, essentially every month on a five-day fast, mm-hmm. and ultimately they ended up um, showing that, that they reversed all the damage, which, once again, these PhDs, they love to try and throw caution. Yeah. He's saying that the researchers caution that these results should not be misinterpreted. And they emphasize that they do not recommend that human beings should eat a high-calorie, high-fat, high-sugar diet mitigated by periodic fasting. That's not what I'm reading. <laughs> yeah. I'm reading Twist Off. Yeah. And just once a month, you yeah. know. Every year on November, it's Brahms all the time. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting that we just keep learning more and more about 
fasting and how it plays into it, but obviously eating a diet that is highly processed is inflammatory. Eating an inflammatory diet can lead to neuroinflammation. Neuroinflammation can lead to depletion of certain neurotransmitters. And so we've come full circle all the way back. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Is that it for fasting? How That's, was it? Uh, you know what? It wasn't that bad because I was, well, first of all, I did several things. So this is my fourth or fifth fast of mm -hmm. five days. I was prepared for it. Yeah. So I went into total keto, I went into total ketosis going into it, which is really funny because one of the things I did is snack on those chicharrones. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I just snacked on them. I was like, this is the only time I'm going to eat these. And I got myself into total ketosis and then I went into the fast doing that. So the first day was easy. Second day, not too bad. Third day, as usual, started having my issues. But then I started drinking a lot of mate tea, yerba mate, the Argentine tea, which has um, the GLP-1 um, agonist, which improves your insulin sensitivity. And then it actually has an uh, appetite suppressant in it. So I was just sipping on that, which is calorie-free, but it also has you know some polyphenols in it. And then I used uh, sauna therapy when I'd get really hungry. I would just go sit in the sauna and put, my, put myself through some serious heat to the point where I'd get a little nauseous. Like I kept pushing it till I was, and then you just kind of get out and lay around and hop back in. And did you happen to check your blood sugar when you did the sauna? I've done it in the past uh -huh. and it goes way up, not way up relatively. Like I'll get in and it'll yeah. be 70. Uh -huh. And then as I'm in it and cause I'll check my, I mean, I've done it all. I've had the, the Dexcom, you know, 24 hour monitor with my phone right there. Uh -huh. I'll check my um, temperature and it'll be like 100.9. I'll be like, Oh, I'm not doing good. And I'm, hurting but i'll hang out there Remember, i got the infrared sauna at the yeah. house where i can get real hot internally and i got it up to 102 and i was tachycardic at about 160 170 and then i did i checked my blood sugar and it was 140 you got your heart rate to 160 170 uh-huh yeah you took yourself to svt man i know it was but it's like a workout yeah it's just like a workout it's like doing a Interesting. Well, I was just kind of curious uh, what the blood sugar would go up to while fasting. Oh, and then it plummeted right back down. Yeah. So 140. Now, remember, I have a genetic predisposition to diabetes. That's what my dad unfortunately died of ultimately with a kidney failure. And so I know that I'm at risk for it. So you, when you fasted, your blood sugar plummeted. Like you've got zero insulin resistance. I do have some. And so I know that it probably jumped up a little bit more. Man, I still think it would go up, though, even on me, though. I just I haven't ever done that test. I'm just curious uh, uh, how much it would go up while fasting uh, and then hop into a sauna because I think they, they always recommend don't get into vigorous exercise while you're fasting. However, sauna isn't vigorous exercise, but it mimics the, the metabolic increase of exercise. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so I should have checked it then because did I break my fast? Yeah. I don't know. I didn't bump insulin. I don't know if you have broken it so much. I still, I still stayed in though. ketosis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, and 140 is on the Dexcom, which is about 20 more than you would on a finger stick is what I found. So it's, it got up to 120. So if I went into it at 60, got up to 120. My curiosity is more about the fact that you're not eating uh, – Certainly not. I mean, next to nothing is what you're eating. Um, but that the blood sugar probably wouldn't go up nearly as high and certainly not sustained. And I don't think that you would have broken ketosis at all. I'm just curious, like, what does that spike look like yeah. in fasting versus what it looks like just in, in normal practice? Because I think that a normal practice, it probably has a peak and then it probably tapers and then drops a little bit. But I would imagine, and I'm just guessing, that when you're fasting, it's probably like this. It might just be a blip. 
it could just be really short and short lived and then kind of over almost like your body is getting into a state of, well, this is high metabolic load. We don't really have any of this circulating right now. Uh, your myoglobin, uh, yeah, your myoglobin's hanging on to what uh, elements of sugar it has in store right there already, because that's that's what's happening during fasting yeah. anyway. Yeah, and it's yeah, I mean it's like you're the, you're mobilizing the glycogen and all that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's a, maybe it's an effective way. We do know that polyphenols are ma- are fasting mimetic molecules. Correct. So it does something similar. Maybe sauna is a fasting mimetic. Maybe it's a rapid depletion. Like maybe you can speed up the effect of the fast by using that to deplete all of your glycogen. I don't know. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff, though. Yeah, but I will say this. I slept great, like oh, yeah. really slept great. And then by the fifth day, that orexin kicked in. I went to bed later than usual because I was bowel prepping. <laughs> so, yeah, don't. Here's something. Um, it's super romantic. <laughs> To have you and your wife bowel prepping for a colonoscopy at the yeah. same time. High five it as a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> but it really wasn't that bad. We're, I, I was able to use a pill prep and it worked out really well and it just wasn't a big deal. But So I went to bed a little bit later and I woke up 2.50. Just I just kind of went ping. And I looked over and I was like, oh yeah, we've been here before. I was wide awake. On the day of? On the, yeah, by f- day four to five. Yeah. Yeah, so or basically five because it started fi- day five started at five p.m. day five, so halfway through day five, I just woke up and I just worked from like two fifty yeah. until it was time to go get my colonoscopy at one thirty in the afternoon. Yeah, felt just phenomenal, like to the point where it's like, I don't know, it's one of those things. It's kind of like when I do breath work, like when you when I get really into the Wim Hof, mm-hmm. I can get myself feeling borderline high like it's a euphoria yeah but you got to work to get there yeah i mean it's like the first 30 minutes of heavy breathing is just like this sucks yeah that's kind of like the fast i i'm that first uh, feeling of having the uh the orexin or whatever that when i had that the first time i really didn't know what to think of it i wasn't prepared for that that sensation either and i just i just remember thinking that i had slept an entire night and i woke up I think this was day four of a water fast for me. And I woke up and I thought, oh, wow, I can't believe I got yet another great night of sleep. And I looked at the clock. And even though I felt rested and ready to do anything of the day, I had been asleep for two hours and 15 minutes. And I was like, what is happening? And I couldn't go back to sleep. And I had lots of energy, but I wasn't prepared for it at all, that that was going to be a, uh, a feeling or a sensation and I had uh, I had thoughts. Of, I, w- I hadn't met Rian yet, so I wasn't really prepared for flow state and preparedness. I had thoughts of uh, of uh, well, chewing on my own leg was was one thought. Yeah. Um, I mean, just anything. It was it was. Thank God you're not flexible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tried really hard. Anyway, well, this is uh, cool. This is kind of a a little recap of everything first of all i thought your lecture was amazing and we would like to start building a little bit more of a community here when i'm listening to this like i'm thinking like if you listen to this would you mind sharing it uh first of all like subscribe the usual stuff that helps get the word out but let's start building a little bit of a community i think that i want to uh, go to kbmdhealth.com and sign up for the newsletter so that we can start sharing some stuff we're going to start we got really cool stuff coming up All these people that we've talked about are absolute 
killers in their field. They're Definitely. amazing. And we're going to have um, Dan Clark and Kevin um, Woods. Woods. Kevin Woods, PhD for Brain.fm and the CEO of Brain.fm, Dan Clark. They're going to come here because we're going to be doing some research with them. Oh, yeah. At the Endoscopy Center. That's pretty amazing research. And they're going to come on the podcast next week. Uh, we got all kinds of other great guests. Mark Kahoot at Mark some point Cahoot will make his way down here. For Ascent, which is, which is neuro, which is olfactory stimulation of neurotrans, of neurotransmitters. Anyways, it's really cool stuff. It's all based on science. He's at the Mayo, you said Mayo Clinic, right? The Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, or Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, yeah, he's at the Cleveland Clinic. So do, do me a favor, share this, uh, sign up for the newsletter. We'll start sharing some more. I want to know if anybody would be interested in joining me uh, or at least would wear it. You don't even have to join. There doesn't have to be any real commitment other than if if we make some bracelets. Should it be the Atrantil logo? Should it be GIA, my company? Should it be the KBMD logo for uh, the, the other products that we have? And we got some other really cool products. We got tons of research going on. We've got a lot of cool stuff. But this way we can start sharing with everybody. I almost think that we could do a gut check project slash KBMD community fast. Dr. Dan Pompa has done that with his with his group of people, yeah. they'll, they'll actually sign up to all do the fast at the same time. Yeah, we can do some prep and talk about why it is group. that we're doing what we're doing. You know, the, the fat, the information behind fasting sounds crazy to you find out why it's beneficial. I mean, yes. seriously. Yeah. And then you find out that it's beneficial and you wonder why didn't I know this before? And it's because we weren't taught that. And yeah. We could get into that. Again. You know what we should do? We should put that plumbus in like a epoxy case so it can't break. Mm -hmm. And then the person that shares the podcast the most gets the traveling plumbus trophy that they get to hold on to. Now, this sounds like an award. Yes, it is an award. It's the traveling plumbus. <laughs> if, do you want to be the first recipient of the KBMD Health Plumbus? <laughs> I mean, I do, but I'm already here. So I don't get to do that. Yeah. And so... Um, Pickle Rick? Yeah. We're, I'm becoming an art collector. I think that's a call. I think that's a call out for more <laughs> Rick, and, Rick and Morty stuff. <laughs> but anyways, that was, uh, that was cool. We covered a lot of stuff. We met a lot of really cool people. And I think that part of what we're trying to do here is share some of their knowledge and just try to make people healthier. We want to make a community here. That's another way to increase your dopamine. 100%. Well, that was awesome. Good trip, too. Everybody else, that's going to be episode number 63. And um, if you want to know more about Ken's experience fasting, uh, how to get in touch with uh, Reendorse and Flow, or maybe we could make some of the slides available on the, uh, uh, goodness gracious, the neurotransmitter talk that we yeah. Talked about earlier, maybe we could find yeah, a way Eric, to Eric has a whole PowerPoint to this whole thing, and he gets into a lot more detail. And if you're interested in that kind of stuff, it's really cool. Yeah, let us know. Let us know. That's episode 63. Thank you all so much for all the support, and thank you for liking and sharing. We will see you all next time. Take care.